Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I will be talking with Dr. Heather Montgomery. She is a social anthropologist who studied for her, for her PhD at Trinity College, Cambridge, which she wrote on child prostitution in Thailand. She has had jobs and research positions in Sussex, Norway, Texas and at Oxford. Her research interests are within childhood studies, especially the history and anthropology of childhood and children's rights. Heather, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, it's my pleasure. Okay, so today uh, we're going to talk about the anthropology of childhood in general, some general topics about it, of course, not something very specific, but let's start with this question. Does childhood have universal traits, that is, traits that are common across all studied societies around the world? Okay, I mean, in some ways that's a very simple question, in some ways a very difficult one. Of course, I mean, of course children have certain universal characteristics. They're smaller than adults. They grow in recognizable patterns and recognizable ways. Um, we could tell you the difference cross-culturally between a two-year-old and a 15-year-old. So, while Sometimes, you know, we forget, I think, some, especially in social anthropology, we sometimes forget that there are these very obvious biological differences and changes that happen during childhood. However, I think it's a bit more complicated than that because the way societies make sense of these changes is very, very different. Um, and so while two-year-olds may have the same average bone length or whatever, how, what societies, different cultures think about those children, what they think a two-year-old can do, what they think a two-year-old is, differ very, very widely cross-culturally. So I'm always wary of universal statements, but at the same time, you can't get away from the fact that children are smaller than adults and that children are different from adults. And we don't know of any society ever, I mean, both across time or space, that ever thinks that children are the same as adults. Mm -hmm, exactly. And it's interesting that you refer to the biological aspect because it's usually what people refer to when they talk about innate differences, in this case, between boys and girls, for example. And I've already had uh, quite a few evolutionary psychologists on the show, and they, of course, refer very much to those aspects. but we're not trying to create some sort of naturalistic fallacy here and saying that just because boys and girls naturally tend to um, binary groups of behaviors, let's say, that those are good things, let's say. So, uh, but um, I, I guess that what you want to say is that the fact that boys and girls in different societies are treated differently uh, and they are given different social values even, that those things also have an effect on the way boys and girls develop over time, correct? Yes, I mean, I, I, I would agree with much of that. I think the only, only other thing I would say, though, is that um, 
one of my, I think, feelings about sort of evolutionary theory is that it doesn't allow for social change. And if it's the one thing that we see in childhood, it is how much uh, how much change there is. So when you start talking about sort of evolutionary positions or naturalistic positions, you've got to take into account that things change so dramatically. I mean, you only have to look at the position or thoughts about women in the last 150 years to know that what we took for for centuries, for millennia, as natural um, gender divisions really aren't what we thought they were. There may be other ones that we don't know that are still emerging. And I think it's exactly the same with childhood, um, that changes are so... Um, have been so rapid, I think, in the last 150 years. And um, yes, I mean, if you look at very large-scale studies of childhoods across the world, like the um, the Human Resources Area Files, which are these longitudinal studies um, done on different societies, um, lots of those will show that um, children do tend to, um, say, um, divide in middle childhood and only play with children from one um, from one gender. But there are also counter examples where that isn't the case. So, and I think one of the things that I like about anthropology is that for all the um, examples of one thing, there are always examples of other societies that do something else. And how you fit those together within one theory can be quite problematic sometimes. But I think I would say that Certainly in, in England, where I'm based, the whole notion of children separating during middle childhood has changed totally. It's changed since I was at school. And whereas that might have been the case once, I, think it, I really don't think it is anymore. So I think I would always say that I'm probably more interested in socialization than, and cultural differences than biological differences, just because I think that they change faster. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and what are the main tools that you use in social anthropology when approaching the studying of childhood in this case? Do you have any core theory from which uh, the rest stems mm -hmm. or, or something like that? I would say that at heart I'm a social constructionist, which is probably quite old-fashioned and outdated now. But I do think that um, childhoods, childhoods have to be seen in context. Um, I think that they are very, very different. And unless you un and you've got, but you've got to understand the society in which they're occurring. You've got to look at questions about the nature of childhood in that society, where childhood begins and ends, what roles and responsibilities you have that, uh, that children are seen to have. I think another very strong um, theme that I work with is that children aren't these passive beings. They're not just sort of bottles to it, into which you pour socialization and then they all grow up in the same ways. Children are very, very active. Um, they shape, I mean, as every sort of family knows, different children have different personalities, different children bring out different things in parents. So you've, I see family life and childhood as relationships, and these relationships change the individuals and also change the shape of, of the family, and then go on to change 
society. So I think agency, and it's a very debated term, and it can be taken, I think, sometimes to extremes, but I still think it's a very important term in the study of childhood because it really recognizes that children change adults as much as adults change children and I think that's something that is sometimes overlooked. Mm -hmm. Okay uh, and you refer to the fact that children are active in what they seek for let's say and isn't it also true that uh, a, an universal aspect that childhood has in this case is that boys and girls from a certain age onward tend to prefer playing with uh, other children of the same sex that is they tend to segregate in a binary way and boys prefer to play with boys and girls with girls isn't that also the case again i think it's i think in general maybe um, I think, again, if you look at sort of these big cross-cultural comparative studies like the Human Resources Area Files, you do see that. However, you also see that maybe in smaller communities, in hunter-gatherer communities, for example, where there just aren't that many children, children do tend to play in mixed age and mixed sex groups. So it's not, it's not actually universal. I mean, you can think of reasons why that might be the case in these particular societies. But I think, as I was saying earlier, it changes. And I certainly see that change happening now um, in English society amongst English children. It may not be the same elsewhere. It may not be the same throughout England. Um, but certainly in the schools I know and in the children I know now, um, I don't think that split is, is as um, dramatic as it, as it probably was 10 or 20 years ago. Um, so yes, I think it's one of those questions, and I think I'll say this to quite a lot of the questions you ask, that yes, in general, but <laughs> there are also counterexamples and, and social change, which we've got to factor in as well. Okay, uh, and the next, the next question that I have is very important for us to create a background for them to understand uh, questions like, uh, childhood labor that I will ask you afterward, that is, uh, what are the effects that the economic roles and the gender division of labor, uh, of labor that uh, each society creates, uh, creates for the two sexes have on children? Um. I think, I mean, obviously there's a very strong gender aspect to this, but I think it goes back to a sort of more general question about what are the roles and responsibilities of childhood and also the roles of children within the family. I think that in the contemporary West, we've reached a stage now whereby children are not expected to contribute economically to the family. Um, in any sense. I mean, they don't look after younger children anymore, which often frees up the mother to work. They don't contribute money to the family. I mean, in some in some places they do, but I, mean, I think in most sort of industrial Western societies, they don't. Um, so children are just not seen as net contributors in the West. Now, in other parts of the world, probably especially in poorer parts, but not always, childhood is seen very differently. Childhood, ch children have roles, they have responsibilities. Even if the parents were very rich, they might still make their children do certain forms of labor because 
you're, the family is seen more collectively and everyone must contribute. And within those communities, you see, you see a whole variety of patterns. You do often see girls looking after younger children um, because it's seen as a more natural role. It's also seen as a training for the future life, that they're girls, they'll grow up as women, they'll be mothers, so that it's important that they learn to look after children from a very early age. Also, some, sometimes, usually, um, parents are more protective of girls. They don't want them going off to work in factories. They don't want them taking on wage labour outside the home. So while boys could go off and earn a wage and send money home, girls are less likely to expect that. But again, of course, as the world becomes more industrialised, there are more opportunities for girls to travel. That's changing. Um, so, yes, you do certainly see divisions of labour about what jobs girls do, what jobs boys do. Um, but again, you've got to take into account sort of individual circumstances, cultural norms about what, what girls and boys should do, but what children should do. And um, think about that as well as thinking about the social change. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And would you say that perhaps in more traditional societies, uh, it usually happens that we have these strict or stricter roles for girls and boys uh, because um, naturally women are the ones who get pregnant and I mean it's much more costly for women uh, when they get pregnant than for men when they impregnate a woman. So would you say that perhaps uh, that would also have some way some weight on the ways people make decisions about how they should deal with boys and girls and the tasks they they should uh, they should put them to do because uh, it would be much more costly for example for someone who had daughters to give them more liberty uh, and perhaps and, and perhaps to uh, get through the risk of being impregnated by, let's say, a low-value boy or man uh, than for boys because they can go out there and spread uh, and try to impregnate as many women as they can and it doesn't really take a toll on their resources, uh, at least immediately, let's say. Yes, I mean, I think there is a theory about this, and it's called parental investment theory. It's um, a lot of evolutionary by um, anthropologists and psychologists talk about it. Um, again, I think I I shy away slightly for, from it because, of course, you've got you've got very different um, societies. You know, I, I can see absolutely that there's a difference between a dowry society and a bride wealth society, because of course in a dowry society, a, a girl is a net cost to you, um, raising her, um, raising a dowry for her, and then she will go off and reproduce in another family. Whereas a boy um, brings both money and children into the family. And for a long time, this was argued that this is one of the reasons that you educated boys in places like India, but not girls, because what's the point? You were putting investments into a girl who was going to leave your family, whereas um, a boy 
would be staying there. So I, I certainly think that these sorts of, of decisions about investing in children um, certainly make a, makes sense on, on one level. However, again, there's also been some um, research about saying that, well, actually boys can often earn more than girls, so it's better to send them off earlier and take them out of school earlier, whereas the girls haven't got much else to do before they get married, so you actually keep them in school longer. So, again, for every sort of... Uh, every big theory out there. I think that they're smaller sort of um, examples which undermine some of it, or not, not undermine it, but, but make you say yes, but. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, and how do you look at the exaggerated behaviours in terms of the way boys and girls act? that occur usually after puberty and during adolescence because uh, it seems to have a biological basis but on the other end you also you, in your work you also talk about for example initiation rituals uh, and they also have uh, occur differently for boys and girls uh, and they focus on different aspects and different roles they would have to fulfill in that given society that they live in. So uh, how do you deal with, with both these things? The, the biological part that is when puberty hits, usually boys and girls, uh, their differences get exaggerated. But on the other end, you also have the cultural aspect of the society promoting those exaggerations right yes i mean i think you put it i think you put it very well i think i think probably initiation and and you know the rites of passage around initiation are one of those areas where sort of separating biology and culture is incredibly hard and probably not very um what's the point of trying to do it because they're so intertwined um yes there's a very strong argument that initiation sort of makes boys more masculine and that makes girls more feminine in line with social norms um, and they certainly on the whole tend to look at um, tend to emphasize um, sexualities um, and heterosexualities and reproductive roles in the future um, but again, not all rites of passage and not all initiations um, occur at adolescence. You have many that occur quite soon after birth. You have, several, you have many that occur in middle childhood. So again, I, don't, I wouldn't want to sort of fit all these um, di you know, very different, um, very disparate rites of passage into one big overreaching theory. Um, but I think I think you're absolutely right about about saying that that rites of passage in adolescence do tend to focus on reproductive roles and normative sexualities. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, and what is there some general trend uh, that these rituals of initiation and things like that have? when they are divided by sex or gender that is for example do the rituals of initiation 
that are directed at boys and girls share different aspects in different cultures? Do, do they tend to emphasize uh, different things for boys and girls? Um, yes, I mean, I think, I think in both cases, um, you, the, the, the rites of passage are creating adults with particular roles and responsibilities. So therefore, yes, on the whole, men's initiations tend to involve um, more pain, more um, overcoming fear. Girls tend to be uh, much more about um, appropriate behavior. But that really is quite a generalization. And of course, lots of girls' initiation rituals are very, very painful. So it's not a question of um, that. But there isn't the same emphasis on overcoming the fear and being a woman as there seems to be in some of the, uh, some of the men's. But again, um, we've got to look at, at social change. I mean, the very, very famous rituals in South Africa amongst the Kosa, you had Nelson Mandela's very brilliant description of his initiation, um, whereby he, um, young Kosa men go off into the countryside for up to a year sometimes. They live separated from um, the rest of the community. They come back, they're circumcised, and then at the end, they're a man. He gives a very um, vivid and wonderful description of how this happened and, and his fear and how he conquered it and how important it was to his own ideas of masculinity and adulthood. But of course, um, now, things are, you have to look at all the other things that have gone on. The fact that now um, you can only really do initiation ceremonies in the school holidays you can't do them for a year anymore. You can't go off. The spread of AIDS has meant that traditional circumcisers now have had to have medical training. They have to use particular instruments to do it. And there's now also been talk about anesthetics and, and these sorts of things. So, so the actual ritual changes. And some people have started to argue that it's losing its power now because it doesn't really perform the same functions as it used to. Um, in Mandela's time. So yet again, I think that along these you know, quite, you know, these patterns that we've seen in the past, I think that social change has meant that those things are changing too, and that the meanings behind these initiation ceremonies are changing. I think you also see this very much with um, female circumcision, which I don't know about Portugal, but it has been quite a... Um, a subject that there have been laws passed in the UK about it and there's been a real desire to clamp down on it. And some people, some people have argued that we shouldn't outlaw it entirely, but we should make it much safer, we should medicalize it, you should maybe just make a symbolic cut to a woman rather than the full clitoridectomy or something. And so there is this sense of, you know, how can we make rituals and rites of passage both relevant and meaningful, and should we, or should we just say, right, they're, you know, they're old-fashioned, they have no place in a modern society, and outlaw them entirely. So 
it's very difficult to talk about these things neutrally or, you know, apolitically because they do bang up straight against against modern westernised views of what is a child, what is um, an acceptable way of making adults out of children. And I think this goes goes to the core of it. And that's really my interest, I suppose, much more than, than universal theories. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we already touched touched here about a little about the fact that the the number of children that people have, uh, and if they prefer boys and girls, and also the roles that they give to each boy and each girl, uh, has a lot to do with the economic value that the parents or the family can extract from each particular child. So, would you say that? that fact also has a relationship with uh, the um, with child prostitution and child labor in general yes i think it can i mean i as i say it's not something that i've studied in in a great detail but um there has been some wonderful work on the north of thailand by somebody called lisa taylor and she actually looks at which girls within a family are being sent into prostitution. She and she argues that it's often the second daughter that a lot of um, a lot of activists who want to end child prostitution in Thailand were offering scholarships to the older to the first daughter of the family on the belief that she then wouldn't be sent into prostitution. But what they discovered, or what what Lisa Taylor discovered, was that she that the first girls were not going into prostitution. They tended to be too useful around the house. They um, looked after their children. They were providing labor on. Um, sorry, they looked after their parents' other children, i.e., their siblings. They um, worked on their parents' farm. So actually you're most at risk of being sent into prostitution if you're the second or particularly the third daughter of family. So I thought, I mean, I found that very, very interesting because it did suggest that any any um, intervention in these families had to be targeted at just the right point. It wasn't just enough to target the families or the girls in the family. You really actually had to go in and look at what each child was doing in the family, what their roles were, and then target them specifically. Now, I think I think that's a, a really good example of where you know, sort of evolutionary, um, more evolutionary biology, um, where parental investment theory and all these and ecological theories all tie in with a very specific social and cultural situation. And I think that that's where those sorts of theories work really, really well um, to help us understand what's going on and to help us change things as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, perhaps the last question would be, you already referred to the fact that there's an history of childhood and that the social and cultural perceptions that people have of children and of what is childhood or what childhood should be uh, have changed across time and also in the West. So could you please talk a little bit about what you deem to be some of the most interesting aspects of how in the West the way people look at childhood and children uh, has changed across time? Yeah, I think 
for me, the most interesting change is one that's happened quite late in, in history, which was the, um, go, going back to the previous discussions about child labour and child work, that for many centuries, um, <coughs> excuse me, children, children were very much part of the economic unit of a the family. They, they worked, they contributed, um, they did whatever they could. I mean, even, you know, in, in accounts of um, children back from the sort of 14th, 15th century, we've got children working. Even if it's going off picking fruit or blackberries, they're still making a small contribution to the family. And the family is much more collective. Um, and I think, and there's debate amongst historians about when this happened, but I think sometime between the end of the late 19th century in the middle of the 20th century, there was a very dramatic shift in um, how children were seen and how they were valued. And there's a wonderful historian called Viviana Zelitzer, who is an economic historian, and she argues that children have gone from being um, economically valuable to emotionally priceless. And by that, she means that children were valued in the past because of what they brought into the family, the con contributions they made to it. But now we value children sentimentally, we, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but we look at them in terms of the love they give us, the love we give them. And it's an entirely different register, a different way of talking about children, that we are emotionally very attached to them. And that's not to say that parents in the past weren't. And I think this is always a um, problem. You try and say that, you know, parents have only just started recently loving their children. They haven't, but they valued them differently. And nowadays we don't expect children to work. You know, we barely expect them to do chores. We um, often give them pocket money to do chores rather than getting them to contribute back. And I think that's been a very, um, a very big shift. And I think children have become now the sort of the centre of the family. They, um, they're certainly the emotional core of the family. Parents love their children. They're very explicit in that. They're very protective of them in a way that they weren't before. And so I think that that is a really big shift, that then the idea of a sort of collective family where everybody is helping everybody out through duty, maybe through duty rather than love, is a very dramatic change and one that is happening more and more, I think. I think children, in many ways, we've reached a very odd point of history where children are better protected than ever before, they're safer than ever before, and yet we worry about them like ever before. In child mortality rates, which of course people in the past had, would have to do with half, seven out of ten children dying. Now we don't have to worry about that, so we worry about other things. And probably often over worry about it um, so it's a I think it's a very interesting time for the study of childhood and the study of and the history of childhood as well because there have been such rapid changes in the past hundred years and I think that they're, they're sort of speeding up now so um yes I think it's a it's a fascinating subject it's a it's a subject that there's always something to talk about and write about about sort of history and anthropology of ch children and it's a field that you know I feel very lucky to have spent my working life studying. Mm -hmm. Okay great and would you say j just before we finish that 
Uh, one of the main reasons why that might have happened in the West, particularly, was, the, was due to the fact that, particularly over the last few centuries, uh, economic wealth has increased a lot for the vast majority of people, and that would be one of the ways the circumstances change for most people, and that's why it's easier for people to not to no, to no longer look at children as economic assets or as people that should contribute to the family economy. And, and that's different, of course, for more traditional societies like hunter-gatherers and so on. Yes, I mean, absolutely. And again, while I keep saying I don't want to make generalizations, I mean, it's, it's, it's fairly obvious that child labor decreases as countries get richer and richer. So, yes, there's a, again, there's a very interesting argument there about whether we, what causes what. Is it the increased wealth that causes people to think differently about their children, or do they start to think differently about their children when um, they're richer, they don't have the economic pressures on them? Certainly, as well, of course, you know, hand in hand with, with industrialization, greater wealth, comes greater educational opportunities. It, once countries become richer, they can invest more in children, they can invest more in their health and their education. And so that, as well, I think shifts the ballot, uh, shifts how children are seen and their importance. Um, but, but yes, uh, certainly, certainly increased wealth decreases child labour mm -hmm. on the whole. I could probably find you exceptions. So. <laughs> Yes, sure. Okay, Heather. So, are there any good places on the internet where people can find and follow your work? Or if not, perhaps you could like to share with people uh, books or other resources where they can get in touch with your work? Yes, I would recommend that they looked at my website. I work at the Open University. Um, in the UK, which you can you can Google, um, and I'm very happy always to debate and talk with people about about childhood. So um, please please get in touch. Okay, great. So it was a wonderful conversation, and again, I would really like to thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Oh, well, thank you. It's been great talking to you. Hi guys, thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.